I think if we are a little honest with ourselves, today could be a day we get a little stirred up, a little, a little wound up because of what we're reading. Corporal punishment is not super popular today, but it was pretty popular back in 1985 when I was eight years old. <laughs> it was not as frowned on. My wife has looked at me several times in our marriage and she, she said this phrase, I do not think you got spanked enough as a child. And I've told her, I'm pretty sure I was at max capacity. I don't. But one of the things that my mom would do, she would say, when we get home. And so there was this stretch of about, whatever, 15, 45 minutes of pure dread. I would be sitting in the car, and I don't know, maybe other kids are like me, and I'd be plotting, like, okay, how do we manage this situation? There's several strategies. But my strategy in this particular case, I was probably eight years old, was to race into the house and try to scrounge up some throw pillows and blankets and stuff like that, and I stuffed them in my backside of my pants. And uh, I thought, this sweet, she will never suspect a thing as I come waddling in. I'm ready for this bacon, Mom, you know. And somehow she caught on to me. I don't know exactly how that happened. Now, I tell you that because after reading the book of Hebrews, and maybe particularly after the message today, you are going to wish you had put some padding in. Because there is some intense stuff that we have to be prepared for. He's speaking, I think, primarily to apathetic, indifferent Christians who need to wake up. And Hebrews is kind of a slap in the face. I hate to use all these metaphors that sound bad, but it's, it's like an intense thing to read. I'll just say Hebrews is not messing around. It's not messing around. So let's find our way into the, into the topic. The book of Hebrews is comprised of three major sections. Three major sections. This is just to my way of thinking. The largest main section is what we could call like fine print. It is like thoughtful argument. It's like the fine print of a document. It's very, it's very thoughtful. It's very organized. It's very logical. It's very reasonable. So fine print. And that's basically chapters 1 through 10. And then there's a familiar section. You probably know this section. It's about faith and people of faith. And he lists all these names that maybe you've read before. And that goes from about 11 to the middle of chapter 12. And then he kind of wraps up all these ideas in these final thoughts. So you have this fine print, big section. You have this section about faith. And you have this section of final thoughts. Let's talk about the fine print section just, just for a second. Now, I, I had a few people tell me this week that they really liked it. They liked the logical, laid out, thoughtful argument. It was, it was really good. And I had somebody else tell me this week that they've discovered they don't like Hebrews. And I'm like, I don't think you're, a, you're supposed to tell me that you don't like Hebrews. But I, I get what you're saying because it just didn't feel particularly relevant to them. In fact, this particular section of Hebrews didn't feel relevant. Do any of you get excited about a, uh, a good argument now, some of you that just said, yes, what you thought I said was that, that conflict where you're just really getting into it with somebody. I don't mean that. I mean like an argument, like somebody who lays out a well-reasoned uh, means by which we think about a subject that, that they're, they're making a good point. That's what I'm talking about. Do you ever get excited about somebody who makes a good point? I'm going to make a bold statement this morning and, uh, and tell you that I believe in God. I know, I know, it's shocking, but I believe in God. Despite that fact, despite the fact that I do not be, need convincing that I believe in God, I still find people's reasons for belief incredibly compelling. When someone makes a good point about belief in God, I find it incredibly compelling. I like to collect those. Let me share two with you. 
The, the first one I want to share with you is from an author named G.K. Chesterton, old British author. Um, he, he writes this. He's a very thoughtful, humorous guy. He writes this. He says, it is absurd to complain that it is unthinkable for God to have made everything out of nothing, but then pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing made itself into everything. That's a good point, right? Yeah, you guys are not as excited as I am about that. I'm like, that's a good point. I'm writing that one down. Here's another one from a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, and he wrote, if, if the atheist is right, we are the product of mindless, unguided, natural processes. Then he has given a strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive function. If there's nothing behind it, then we shouldn't trust our own brains. And then he says, and therefore we should doubt the validity of any belief that our brains produce, including atheism. That's right. Come on, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, I know you're probably not sitting here saying, I need to be convinced of the existence of God, but that's a good point. Hebrews is filled with good points where you read it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I really like what he's saying. That really makes sense to me. That's the bulk of this letter. It's this very compelling case that's very thoughtfully and logically laid out. And it's, it's distinctly Hebrew. First of all, there's just tons of Hebrew quotations through the text. The author doesn't draw your attention to them. He doesn't say, and in Deuteronomy, and in Isaiah, and in Psalms. He just embeds them in the text, and he expects the reader to know that they're there because they're familiar with the Hebrew Bible. And then there's a lot of traditionally Hebrew argument but to say that, well, if this lesser thing is true and compelling, then this greater thing is even more true and compelling. That's like a, a Hebrew style of argumentation. So most of the bulk of this book is something like that. It's good points. Now, essentially, he's making one claim, and he's substantiating that claim four different ways. The claim he's making is this, Jesus is better than anything else. Now, nobody in here is probably arguing that point, and you don't need to be convinced of that. But let me tell you why this is important. He, he makes that claim in four ways. He says Jesus is better than angels. He says Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the high priest. And Jesus is a better covenant or a better promise. Is there a single person that woke up this morning and was thinking, man, I just really wonder, is Jesus better than angels? I mean, nobody's, nobody's losing sleep over that. Nobody's questioning that. So you may read the book of Hebrews and you may think like, okay, great. Why is he making that point? The Bible describes Jesus as a high priest. But as we all know, in order to qualify to be a high priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus was the tribe of Judah. So how in the world did he fit the legal requirement to be the high priest? Nobody thought that. The author of Hebrews did. And he makes a case for why Jesus could qualify to be even a better high priest. Now you're reading that and you're thinking, okay, great, that's wonderful. So what? <laughs> right? So what? Who cares? Why would, I, why would I care about that? That's for a different audience. That's not for somebody like me. What's this, what's this all about? But maybe you have wondered, if you've been around church long enough, maybe you've had a thought kind of like this, like, listen, I don't get that if Jesus were just going to burst on the scene then why didn't we just start with Jesus? Why did we have 1,500 years of Old Testament law and ceremony and ritual? Why not just start with Jesus? Why have all that stuff about you can't eat pork and you must wash your hands this way? You can't have bacon, can't have hot dogs, and then all of a sudden it's fine after Jesus? What's up with that? 
If we were just going to have Jesus who said, you know what, all that is fulfilled in me and you don't have to make yourself acceptable to God anymore through those things. Why not just start with Jesus? feels like you're making people jump through a lot of hoops. A lot of Christians also believe that Christianity is some sort of plan B. Like God initiated this plan through the Old Testament prophets and people just could not keep their end of the deal. So God is talking with Jesus and they're just like trying to work something out. And God's like, I don't know what to do. I thought I had a really good covenant here and people, humans are just totally awful and they're messing it up. Jesus, can you, can you go down there and fix it? And a lot of people seem to assume that Jesus is sort of plan B. Like there was this plan A and they, humans messed up. So Jesus uh, had to come in and fix it, fix it up. This is a, uh, an imperfect analogy, but how many of you have ever had a car that only you could, you could drive? You know what I mean? And I don't mean because you were particular about your car. I mean because your car was very particular. It could only be driven in a certain way. This has been most of the cars throughout my, uh, throughout my life, where you could close the door, but you have to lift up and pull really hard, and it's hard to explain to somebody. Or you, yeah, the heat works, but the radio station has to be tuned to a very specific station. Otherwise, the heat doesn't work, and you don't know why. You have no idea why. You just make sure you listen to that one radio station all the time, and the heat seems to work as long as you're going over 45 miles an hour. But there's little things like that. You try to explain that to people, they don't get it, and you tell them, yes, uh, the turn signals work. Here's how you do it. You roll down your window, stick your arm out, and tell people where you're going. That's how the turn signals work. Or like the, somebody borrows it, and they're like, uh, all your dashboard lights are on? You're like, yeah, it's fine. It's been that way for 10 years. I don't know. You have a special bond with a car like that, a special bond. You, you've been through some things together. It's like a friend, and, and you, you know how that car works. You know what to do with, with, a, with a vehicle like that. But then some, at some point, you either make enough money or there's a good enough deal and it's time for a new and better car. And it's not to say that your old car was terrible, it probably was, but it's not to say that, it's just time to upgrade. It's time for something better. And you can acknowledge that the old car got you where you needed to be, but now it's time for something more. Now it's time for something different. Hebrews, the basic argument of this whole first section is saying, listen, if you think angels are impressive, think about this. Angels serve at the behest of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is way more impressive. So if you think angels are cool, Jesus is super cool. If you think Moses, he was a pretty compelling leader. He did a good job. He, he got God's people from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. If you think that's cool, you got to meet this Jesus because he can get people from sin into eternal life. If you think Moses is cool, Jesus is way better. If you think that the old system of priesthood and sacrifice, if you think that made sense and that was good and you go to the temple and you offer sacrifices and the high priest entered the holy holies once a year, if you think that system was good, you are going to be blown away because there is a permanent high priest who offers the sacrifice but is also the sacrifice. This system is way better. If you think that that old covenant was good and you liked it and it made sense and you, were, you thought it was a good deal, just wait till you see the terms of the new covenant. It's way better. It's so good. Jesus keeps your end of the bargain because you couldn't do it. And that's what this first part of this first fine print section of Hebrews is all about. If you thought that was good, oh, hold on to your hats because this other part is amazing. That's what he's talking about. And he just lays out this really well-crafted argument to make that point. That old served you well, 
but there is something new and better here. That's what Hebrews is saying over and over and over. But why bother with thousands of years of this old? Why bother? Why not just start with Jesus? If we were going to get to Jesus anyway, if God knew that people couldn't make it, if God knew that people couldn't handle it, why not just jump to Jesus? Why not just start with Jesus? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, there's this metaphor throughout this book that I think is really powerful and helps, un, helps us understand these ideas. But in verse 3, as he's introducing this whole idea, he talks about the Son, Jesus, being the radiant glory of God. The concept is Jesus is bright like the sun. That's the word radiant, like a sunbeam, like on a bright day, the opposite of our weather right now. Jesus is bright like that. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Direct sunlight, vivid glory. For about six months, I was really, really into learning about mountaineering, which is just people who try to climb to the tops of really high mountains. And so they, they do meters, and I'm not exactly sure how the meters convert to feet, but uh, there's several dozen peaks above 8,000 meters around the world, and above 8,000 meters, the human body starts to die. It's too cold, there's not enough oxygen, human body starts to die, and there's this brand of person that is trying to get to the top of all these places that are trying to kill them. And so I was reading all these nonfiction books, books about disaster and achievement, and it's just, it's pretty amazing. But I was reading all about this, and one of the things that I found fascinating is just they try to describe the scale of some of these mountains. And so, for example, this is a picture uh, from the summit of the highest peak in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro. And you're at the top here, and what you're seeing is the shadow of the mountain being projected toward the Indian Ocean. That's the shadow, that triangular-looking thing. That's the shadow of the mountain from the peak. I think this is at sunrise, so you're climbing during the night, get there at sunrise, and you see this shadow. This is interesting to me. That shadow is being cast for 170 miles. That's how big that shadow is, 170 miles, meaning that you could stand at the top of the shadow at sunrise and still have a two and a half hour drive to the mountain. That's huge. That's, low. That's a really big shadow. I, I don't know, uh, th this math piece doesn't, m it messes with my brain. So some of you math Guys and girls can tell me how this works, but I was reading that a human being can see about three miles into the distance. That's how far you can see if there's no clouds or, you know, atmospheric, whatever. You, you can see about three miles. I don't understand how this works, and my brain hurt trying to think about it, and then I just decided I'll just tell people and they can figure it out for themselves. You can see about three miles. The shadow of Mount Kilimanjaro is 170 miles, meaning that you can be in the shadow of the mountain and not be able to see the mountain. That hurts my brain a little bit. As you're making your way to this huge object that is over the horizon that you cannot see, you can still be in its shadow. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, The law is only the huge shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Jesus, the brightness of the sun, casts a long shadow, and for 1,500 years, the Hebrew people made their way through the shadow till they got to the sunrise that was Jesus. It was just a shadow of the good things to come, and so if we get a glimpse of the holiness of God in the Old Testament, we see the fullness of that holiness in Jesus. 
If we get a glimpse of the forgiveness of God in the Old Testament, we see the fullness of the forgiveness of God in Jesus. It is the brightness. It is the glory. It is the perfect image of the glory of God. Now, maybe some of that doesn't like make sense or you don't care, but uh, Liam happened to turn on the TV and they were playing Bob Ross. And it's super soothing, Bob Ross, and his really calm voice, and he's, he's painting on this picture. And you can watch as, he, as this canvas begins to take shape, and he paints some white, and he paints a line here, and he paints a shape there, and there's this happy little cloud here, and some happy little birds there, and then there's a stream, and there's a brook, and then there's a mountain, and all of a sudden this picture gradually takes shape, and then at the end of that 30 minutes or whatever, Bob Ross has got a painting there. The Old Testament is the the painting taking shape and Jesus is the final presentation. The Old Testament is the draft and Jesus is the reality. I, I think that's important to know. It's important for us to understand that we see glimpses of this reality in the Old Covenant, but the fullness through Jesus. All right, cool. Maybe that helps you organize some things in your brain. Okay, great. But the question remains what practical value is any of that it's helpful i know great i won't ignore the old testament patrick now that's awesome but what practical value is that here's the uh, part of the sermon where you're going to want a little bit of padding in your pants (laughs) Uh, maybe you'll want to put on your seatbelt. woven through all that fine print are these sections of challenge and warning woven through all there, because they're not just academic arguments. They actually have applications. These points have a purpose. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. If you thought the, 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 the truth heard from the angels is important, the truth heard from Jesus, it is crucial. You must pay the most careful attention. Okay, that's the challenge. But look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So there's this this challenge warning throughout the the fine print of the book of Hebrews. You see it in chapter 3, you see it in chapter 4, you see it in chapter 6, and you see it in chapter 10. The warnings in chapter 6 and chapter 10 keep Christians up at night. I have not had a conversation with a single Christian who was a little concerned about their salvation and understanding their, their situation with God that didn't reference these verses. It totally scared them. These are verses literally that some people cannot sleep because it just makes them so concerned and so nervous. Chapter 6, look at this. Remember, there's a challenge and there's a warning. Challenge and warning. The challenge in verse 1 of chapter 6 says this, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And then he lists the elementary teachings, and if you're paying attention, you're like, whoa, those are the elementary teachings? Oh my goodness, those are stuff, there's stuff in the elementary teachings I still don't get. But then he says this warning, verse 4, check this out. It is impossible For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. You've been reading the Bible sometime in this challenge that we've been going through for the last several months, and you thought, oh, that's so good. I love it. This is awesome. And he says, it's impossible for those types of people who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That's heavy. 
Later in chapter 10, he says this. Here's the challenge, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter that most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that place that was reserved for the high priest and the high priest alone once a year, and they actually tied a little rope around that high priest's leg because if the high priest had a heart attack in the Holy of Holies, they couldn't do anything about him. So if he died, they could drag him out. They couldn't go, and this was such a sacred place. And the author of Hebrews says, you have access to that holiest of holies. You have access to the heart of God. You have, you have access to Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to march into that holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Yikes. It's scary. I have never read those verses and thought, I'm good. <laughs> I'm all right. I've always read those verses thinking, man, this is serious business. That's what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, but that's what they want you to understand. This, this is serious business. I've told you that you cannot summarize entire books of the Bible with a sentence or two. We cannot do that. But if you could, here's my attempt at it. Here's what I think Hebrews is saying. Casual indifference will always cause us to drift from Jesus. We never drift toward Jesus. We always drift from Jesus. And that drift will always lead towards spiritual death. That's intense. That's serious. Oh, well, what's for lunch? No. The author of Hebrews wants, to, uh, wants us to wrestle with these ideas. Casual indifference will always cause us to drift. Drift will always lead towards spiritual death. There's an author by the name of D.A. Carson, wrote a lot of uh, commentaries, wrote a lot of great stuff about the Holy Spirit that we explored about a year ago when we were doing our super long Holy Spirit series. Um, he's been around. He's seen stuff. And uh, he wrote about this idea of drift, of drift within Christians. And I thought what he had to say was so good, so I wanted to share it with you. He says this, uh, the drift is invariably toward compromise, sliding disobedience and decay that advances sometimes at a crawl, other times at a gallop across generations. People do not drift toward holiness. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, or obedience to scriptures, faith, and delight in the Lord. So essentially he's saying, you can't just like wake up one morning and think like, whoa, I love Jesus so much more today. It's not how it works. The drift is always away. And he goes on to say, we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we pride ourselves as having freedom. We drift toward indulgence and we call it relaxation. We slide toward godlessness but convince ourselves we have been liberated. See, the, the thing about sections, like, sections of scripture like this is that I think every once in a while we sort of get the idea like, eh, I'm doing all right. You know, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing all right. I don't know that we ever stop and articulate it this way. I don't think anybody ever says, I can coast. <laughs> I can just, you know, I can just roll for a while. I don't, I don't know that we ever say that, but I think that's kind of what we do, you know. I kind of get the gist of the Bible. I kind of got it. I, you know, it's fine, I'm sure. I, you know, prayer, it's never been my thing, so I'm just not really going to, I'm not going to try, you know. Uh, church, take it or leave it, you know. I, I don't think any of us actually think that, but that's the natural result of some of the choices that we make. 
The author of Hebrews, if you do a little time digging through the text, he gives you warnings. He says, hey, here's a red flag to know that you're in a danger zone. This is the warnings, he says. He says, when we stop thinking about pushing ourselves and others to do better, that's a, that's a red flag. When we stop pushing ourselves and pushing others, how uncomfortable is that to do better? He says, when we regularly allow ourselves to be distant from fellow Christians, that's a warning. That's a red flag. When we regularly allow ourselves to be distant from fellow Christians, when we stop making choices that move us away from sin, I don't mean that we stop sinning, but we stop making choices that move us away from sin. This last one is this is the American problem right here. This is the modern American Christian problem. This is the reason there are so many churches that exist in modern America, because people resist spiritual authority in their lives. And when some spiritual authority tries to say, hey, you need to change, you need to fix something, you need to do something, when some spiritual authority tries to hold us accountable, we're like, you know what, I'm just going to go to this other church where I can be anonymous. I'm just going to go to this other place where they agree with me. But one of the important lessons of the book of Hebrews is that real Christianity is about placing oneself under someone else's spiritual authority. That doesn't even sound like something you should be able to say in America, much less actually live, that we choose to be under someone's spiritual authority. That's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. In other words, all these choices are choices that we make that, uh, that don't require faith. And we stop utilizing our faith, it shrivels and dies. And you can see why the author of Hebrews transitions in chapter 11 to this concept of faith. And here's what faith is, and here's what faith looks like, and here's what it's looked like throughout history because it's so important. I want to ask you a question. Um, when was the last time you made a choice that wasn't, this will make me the most money, or this will make the most friends, or this makes me the most happy. When was the last time you made a decision that was tough, costly, or unpopular, but fully founded on your faith in Jesus? Fully. Jesus, in the garden, he has this moment where he's praying to God, and he says, I do not want to go through this. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I do not like this being nailed to a cross thing. That, is, that does not sound good to me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he made a choice that neglected his desires and his comfort to do what God had asked him to do. I, I, when was the last time we made a decision like that, where what we wanted was over here, what, what God wanted is over here, and we followed God? I mean, I don't know that that happens very often. When was the last time your Christianity was hard? In fact, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he says, you guys are resisting sin, good job. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have not resisted that far yet, so hey, you've got some room to grow. When was the last time Christianity cost you? When was the last time you did something that was unpopular because you thought the only reason I'm doing this is because I am convinced that Jesus wants me to? Now, it's no mistake that this section wraps up in chapter 11 with this long list, this enormous list of people whose faith did cost them. 
this list of people who went through tremendous difficulty, hardship, more hardship than most of us will ever face, and still made the right choice. And so I want to wrap up this morning by reading Hebrews 11:37, the end of that section, that list, into chapter 12, verse 3, to try to help us understand what this author wants from us. He doesn't want us to walk away feeling comfortable. He doesn't want us to walk away feeling satisfied. He wants us to walk away feeling challenged. To ask ourselves, are we doing the hard thing or have we been managing our faith and taking the easy route? Look at what he says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. He says, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And in all these things, though commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So they're waiting for us. The race has begun, they've finished, but they're still waiting and they've populated the stands around us and they're looking at us finishing the race and they're saying, listen, this is, this is exactly what he says in verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of countless people who have made the tough decision, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, things that you're doing right now that are not sin, but that are dragging your faith down. Choices to put other things besides the kingdom first. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin. And let us run with endurance. This is not a sprint, folks. This is a marathon. The race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. He didn't want to, but he knew it was on the other side of this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think the last 24 months have made some people weary. I think the last 24 months have made some people faint-hearted. Maybe faith wasn't awesome to begin with, and then you had all this stuff on top of it. We've got to make some hard choices. Listen, you have some hard choices in your life to make. Some of you know what those are. They bubble up to the surface, and you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know what they are. Some of you don't yet know, and we need to pray that the Spirit of God would reveal those difficult choices to you. But you have some hard choices to make, some choices where every piece of you, every desire in your heart wants to go this way, but you are convinced and convicted that the path toward God is leading you this way. In that uh, section in chapter 6 where it's such a harsh warning and you're just left feeling like you got slapped in the face, the author wraps up that section with this verse, and I think it's worth sharing, it's worth highlighting. He says, you know, hey, it's impossible to return to repentance, but he says this, verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. And I think that's the hopeful note that we have to leave with. We are confident. Jesus isn't like trying to beat us up and make us feel terrible. Jesus is that personal trainer that's in our faces saying, you can do better. I know you can do better. You can do better for your own sake. I see it in you. And that's the type of God that we serve. He just doesn't want to leave us lying on the ground. He loves us. He cares about us. But he lifts us up to bigger and better and greater things. Let's pray.